You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy hump day, boys and girls, and welcome back to another episode of the greatest podcast on earth. It's, it's not, Ed, I'm sorry, but it's not the greatest podcast on earth. Actually, the last time I checked Stitcher, I believed my ranking was somewhere around 4,100. So uh, there's upwards of 4,099 podcasts that are more popular than this one. And uh, so, you know, sorry. But anyway, the reason you guys are here is because we're going to talk about hunting and uh, today is actually a hunter profile podcast and we're going to be talking to a gentleman straight out of the great white north canada his name is chase moon and uh, chase lives in saskatchewan and within one and a half two hours of his house he can hunt antelope mule deer whitetail moose elk bear and uh, I think that's about it. But just imagine being able to hunt all those animals within an hour drive, hour or two hour drive. That to me is heaven, if you ask me. But today we're actually going to focus on bear hunting. Uh, we're going to talk to him a little bit about how he got into hunting and whatnot. But the main theme of this podcast is is hunting for black bear. Now he uh, he goes into detail about how he baits and how he sets up and it was kind of an awakening for me because I didn't realize how hard and how dedicated someone has to be you know how hard it is and how dedicated somebody actually has to be to maintain a bait pile and maintain uh you know all the stuff that goes into it but you know I'm not gonna I'm gonna let you know Chase talk about that but before we get into this week's podcast, I want to let you guys know about 2% for conservation. And I recently had the chance to talk with Jeff Spazito. He is the founder of 2% for Conservation. And I asked him, what is 2% for Conservation and how can we get involved? Yeah, Dan, 2% for Conservation is a, a newly formed nonprofit 
that we just launched in April with the, the goal of helping conservation groups raise more money and, and get more volunteers so they can be more successful at their mission work. So essentially, long story short, what we do is we certify businesses and build a network of businesses and individuals who are committed to giving 1% of their time, which is roughly 21 hours based on a 2,000-hour work year, and then 1% of their money back to conservation causes. So if you were to see a 2% for conservation logo on any company's product, you can be assured that that company gives back 1% of every sale to a conservation group. And then beyond that, they also volunteer 21 hours throughout their employees to, uh, to conservation causes. Can you give us an idea of what companies are involved? Yeah, sure. So we, uh, so we started with uh, Sitka Gears, the, the first company, and they are the kind of founding company that came in before, before we even existed, got behind the idea, saw the value in it, and the opportunity to really kind of build a network of other businesses and, and make an impact on conservation. Since, uh, since April is really when we've been starting to uh, reach out to businesses to get people involved and, and to get new businesses signed up. We, uh, we've had some great conversations. We now have six other new businesses who have committed to coming on board. We haven't announced those businesses yet as we're working through the, the kind of PR plan with them. Uh, but we have another clothing company that's going to come on with Sitka. We have uh, a couple other uh, technology companies, some hard goods companies, and, uh, and we're excited to announce those hopefully in the coming weeks here uh, who they are. Ind- individuals can you know, can pledge their time and their, their dollar amount too. What's the difference between the, you know, the companies and an individual, let's say like myself. Sure. Yeah. So that's a great question. And, and yes, you're right that there's a, there's an opportunity for any individual to become a certified, what we are calling a certified true conservationist as well, where, where if you do the meet the same criteria as an individual, give back 1% of your income and, and volunteer roughly 1% of your time, we believe that's worthy of recognition and that's going to make an impact on conservation groups. That's going above and beyond. So, so similar you, in that you can come through, uh, through our process on our website, which is fishandwildlife.org and, and get certified. And, and individuals are so important to this network and building this because uh, we need the businesses to give back to, to really hit that scale uh, of a high dollar value of incremental dollars going to conservation. But it's, uh, if individuals aren't purchasing products from companies who give back, then those companies aren't giving back that 1% of sales. So it kind of comes full circle. We need, we need everybody to be involved. We need individuals to be giving back uh, their time and their money and volunteering. We need them to be demanding that the businesses and the brands that they love and that they purchase are giving back as well. Uh, and that's really when we're going to see the, the impact to conservation. Perfect. Now, when people think about donating their time to conservation, a lot of people think that you have to go out and do something big like rent a bulldozer and create like <laughs> wild, you know, waterfowl wildlife habitat. Let us tell us if, if that is the case or if there's something on a smaller scale that individuals can do to meet that, uh, those hours, the time hours as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And that's, that's a great question as well. Since we launched in April, we've had quite a few uh, people email us saying, what can I do? I live in an area where, where I don't know how to get involved. And, and this is, uh, I think this is an opportunity where we can really help conservation groups reach out and get volunteers. But, but to answer your question, yeah, if you have the capability to do a large-scale project like that, 
and the expertise and know-how, that's great, but that's not at all necessary to make an impact. It's as simple as, you know, an, an example, what I do, how I get my, my hours is I volunteer for a local mule deer foundation committee here in, in Montana. And, and, uh, we plan a banquet, an annual banquet every year. I sell, uh, raffle tickets at the banquet. Uh, and it's as simple as that being involved at that level is, is crucial to helping conservation groups raise money that they need to do their mission work. Um, but if you, if you really do get interested and you go look on, you know, QDMA's website or Mule Deer Foundation or the Elk Foundation or Ducks Unlimited, I think you'll be surprised at the types of opportunities to volunteer that you see. A lot, most of these groups have, you know, regional rendezvous where, where it's a big work party and they get out and they go remove fence or they do, you know, some habitat repair. And, and, uh, and that's an awesome way to be involved too. And it's a great way to meet, uh, to meet people in your community that are like-minded, passionate hunters and conservationists as well. So, so the opportunities, I think there's, there's a lot more opportunities to volunteer and be involved with conservation than people might first realize when they, when they start thinking about, shoot, what can I do? And then lastly, um, you've already mentioned fishandwildlife.org is your guys' website, but where else can uh, listeners go to find out more information about 2% for Conservation? So uh, fishandwildlife.org is, is definitely our uh, the best spot to get as much information as you can find to learn about who we are, what we're doing, how it works. Uh, also follow us on, on social media, um, Facebook and Instagram, 2% for Conservation, Twitter, uh, to stay in tune with with things as they evolve. As we uh, sign on new business members, we will announce them through our social channels. So, so definitely pay attention there because we want to, we want you guys to know about who those businesses are that are committed to giving back. Uh, and then outside of that, as, as we bring on new businesses, look for that logo on packaging, on hang tags in, in other brands, marketing collateral to know that they do give back and they are certified to give back 1% of their sales and, and volunteering 1% of their time. It starts right now. Not tomorrow, not an hour from now. This podcast can actually wait. So you need to go to 2% for Conservation's Facebook page and like it. You need to like them on Instagram and Twitter. And you need to go and check out their website, fishandwildlife.org, because the future lies in our hands. And I know all this sounds really cliche, but it could potentially be the most important thing you do all week, all month, all year. So find out information, join up, and uh, let's let's honestly make a difference. But now let's get into this week's Hunter Profile podcast with Chase Moon. All right, on the show with me now is Chase Moon. How are you doing today, Chase? Pretty good, yourself? I'm doing pretty good, pretty good. Now... You are all the way. When I say the Great White North, I'm not talking about Minnesota or uh, Wisconsin this time. I'm I'm talking about even further north up into Canada. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and what you do for a living? All right. So I live in Humboldt, Saskatchewan, which is about a little over an hour east of Saskatoon. And I am a grocery manager at the local grocery store in the town there. Okay. How big is uh, the town that you live in? Um, it's about, it's between five and 6,000, so it's a pretty good-sized town. Yeah, not not too bad. Good, good. All right, so have you lived in Canada? I mean, I take it from your accent, no offense, that, you, uh, <laughs> that you've uh, been living there your entire life? Yeah, okay. born and raised. Born and raised, gotcha. Um, 
So let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you started getting into first, I guess, hang on one second. We'll back up just a little bit. You know, we're going to, we're going to talk about your, um, we're going to talk about a bear hunt. You know, that's going to be the main focus of this uh, podcast, but we're, we're also going to talk a little bit about other big game that you, that you've killed because in Saskatchewan, you know, before we got on the phone, you were telling me bear, white tails, mule deer, moose, elk, and antelope are all in Saskatchewan, correct? Yeah, that's correct. All right. So have you been successful with every one of those, uh, big game species? Everything but elk. I haven't tried for elk yet. Okay. So are you, are you hunting with a bow or a gun or both? Um, I own a bow. I haven't used it in a long time. I used to bow hunt the before I could drive. And then when I drive, I switched over or when I could drive, I switched over to goose hunting. Yeah. So now for the past few years, be mainly rifle with a little bit of muzzler hunting too. Okay. Nice. Nice. Is, um, I get describe the area that you live in. Is it is are all those big game species within like an hour drive from your house, or do you um, have to tra- travel a lot to get to different species? It de- it depends. Um, so I grew up in Rosetown, Saskatchewan, which is an hour southwest of Saskatoon. So, but anyways, around Humboldt, you know, we have we have the elk, moose, whitetail, and mill deer all right there like you drive out of town and you're able to hunt them basically um with the mill deer though it's not real great i grew up down further south so i'm used to a lot bigger mill deer than what they have around there and they had uh two or three years of really hard winter kill in that area so they it basically decimated like 80 percent of the deer herd so we're still recovering from that so when i go deer hunting i still do come back home to rosetown we didn't have quite the winter kill that they did so you know we still still come out here and see a hundred deer in a day or whatever perfect perfect and um i i guess how old were you when you started you know hunting and and what was the first types of animals that you got into um in saskatchewan to legally hunt big game you have to be 12 years old so i shot my first deer when i was a few days past 12 okay all right and it was that was that with your dad or your uncles or brothers or yeah, no my dad my dad's a big hunter is you know being like six eight years old and we go shoot coyotes in the winter and i'd go fetch them for him and you know ducks go fetch the ducks for him and stuff like that yeah okay so um so you kind of were raised in a in a hunting family then right yeah all right all right so then uh, you know after after you were deer hunting you know, you deer hunted for a while. You shot, you shot your deer. When did you start getting into other big game? Well, how it works is every spring you apply for draws, you know, just like the states do and stuff. Yep. And the draws are for the prime areas. So it happened just as I turned legal age, you know, we, lots of the moose are migrating down south of Saskatchewan and into the southern part of Saskatchewan for various reasons. So, you know, now you have this opportunity to shoot a moose in the middle of a stubble field. It's not a real hard hunt, but it's very successful. And, you know, you put a 600, 600 pounds of meat in the freezer is always good, too. So I always applied for the draws. And um, antelope is all draw. With moose, you can buy a 
tag over the counter, but that's just for areas up north. And elk is the same way. You know, there's draw and you can buy a tag for areas up north. And with Millie's, you can buy a tag for them over the counter, but it's only bulk. Okay. All right. Now, so, yeah, what was, I mean, so how old were you when you started shooting moose and you shot your first moose or you shot your first antelope or mule deer? Um, I'd been, I don't know, 13 or 14 when I shot my first antelope. Okay. I, I applied for the draws every year since I was 12, and it took me eight years to pull a moose tag, so I was about 20 when I shot my first moose. Shot my first mill deer. I had been 12 or 13 then, and I've shot a few since then still. Okay. So are you are you more focused on, you know, putting meat in the freezer, or do you do some uh, – you could kind of – pass younger game for a chance at let's say a mature moose or a mature mule deer um especially those things i do like if you're to go you know regular season up north like just buy the tag there's the quality is not there like they just get hammered too hard like that everyone who goes up there knows that's like a meat hunt like first thing that's legal but like when a guy gets drawn he definitely passes like i've shot some big mule deer and you know every like, we can buy a whitetail tag every year, so I don't hammer the first one I see. I try to wait for at least a mature buck. I only have, like, last year I only had, like, three days to hunt whitetail, so that kind of limits your options a little bit. Gotcha. So when when do the seasons, as far as your your year is concerned, when do the seasons start to open up? And we'll just say that, you know, probably January or February starts closing some of these um, seasons. But when is, your, I guess, your opening day and what species are you hunting? Okay, so um, mildew and whitetail open up September 15th for archery. And that runs, well, October 1st, whitetail will open up for muzzleloader. And that runs to the 14th of October. And then they shut it down for a few well i guess a month now and then rifle season opens up for white tail on 20th of november and runs to like the 5th or 8th of 8th of december somewhere in there so they shut down all hunting in that time frame um just for those species like you know if if you got a moose tag or whatever you know it's open like october 1st to 14th it, it, lots of it depends on what you're hunting okay. in the area okay but for the most part big game hunting is done like the first week of december Gotcha. So in Saskatchewan, you know, and I've only watched a lot of the, you know, the, the hunting television shows that's basically, <laughs> you know, looks to me like thick, real thick, uh, timber and kind of flatter ground. Are you up in some hills or mountains? Um, well, what you're seeing is all the outfitters. The outfitters have to guide in the forest. Okay. I don't hunt the forest. The stuff around Humboldt's really hilly with lots of little bluffs. Um, where I deer hunt is hilly but really open. Like, I don't know, have you ever been to, like, I've heard Saskatchewan, like, around here is comparable to Nebraska. Like, lots of pastures and hills and stuff. Right. Okay. Like, I hunt whitetail the same way as you see guys hunting mill deer. It's all spot stock. Okay. Like, I've shot whitetail or I've shot mill deer, like, the same spot following years they, they live right beside each other basically gotcha gotcha and then for for moose 
or for I guess antelope, it's it's kind of flatter there, right? Or I guess yeah. the rolling hills. So the antelope obviously are are in the flatter grounds. But yeah. I mean, are there mountains near you? Or or uh, nope, nope. So it's uh, so you're hunting. So on these this elk, when the elk and the moose are they on flat grounds too? Yeah, the the most the hardest to draw tags would be for the elk and the moose down in the farmland. Okay, like. Back in the day when they first opened it up, like there was some monster shot, like 60 plus inch moose and stuff, which they overshot it a little bit. So the trophy quality is not there, but you still have a fairly, you know, you can still shoot a 45 inch moose fairly regularly and it's not a super tough hunt. And okay, the, the bonus is you get a 600 pounds of grain fed moose. So it's as good as beef. Nice. Nice. Well, that's amazing that, you know, cause that's one thing that I would love someday. I mean, in Iowa where I live, it's whitetail and Turkey. Now, granted you can go fishing or you can, you know, go pheasant hunting, but you, you can't hunt all five of those, you know, five or six of those big game species under in within an hour drive of your house. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. that would be awesome to live someday out west for me anyway <laughs> but uh but but you also have you know the bear and that's what yeah. what I want to talk to you, talk about today a little bit is um you went on kind of a DIY hunt yeah. um now was that in some some public some public hunting ground yeah okay provincial provincial forest okay now why don't you go ahead and talk to us a little bit about um I guess how how do you how you were planning for this? Um, what made you first of all want to say, hey, I want to go shoot a bear, and second, what kind of planning took place to try to find the ground that you wanted to hunt? Okay, um, well, I once again grew up hunting bears. My dad hunted bears, so I I was probably I remember helping him bait before I was even old enough to hunt, probably eight or ten years old, helping him bait and started sitting trying to shoot a bear when I was 13 probably shot my first round when I was 14 or 15 but anyways um when we moved we moved more to the west side of the province so then we switched areas it just happened when I got my job in Humboldt there I was an hour and a half away from where we used to hunt bears so it worked out good I went back into the same old bait me and my dad used to hunt when I was like 13 14 15 years old got set up there and it just worked out awesome the bears the bears come in and managed to get lucky it was kind of cool to be hunting on a bait that hadn't been there in six or seven years still surprised I remembered the trails remembered where the bait was not it's not like we have a quad trail cut into it or anything or flagged off anything it's just a pine tree as a marker Right. So, and that's kind of, that's how you got started or was that this most, the, the hunt that we're, we're, we're talking um, about? That was the most recent one, but you know, I got started my dad always hunted bears. So I always went along and right. helped him out. So grew up hunting bears with him as well. And is, was that all on state ground as well? Yeah. And, and you're, you're allowed to bait on state ground. Yeah. Okay. Now, are there any rules or regulations? Because from, a, from what I've seen on TV, and you know, basically they try to get which looks like the most disgusting stuff that possible. <laughs> you know, the sweet the sweet stuff, as uh, you know, yeah. as some people call it. They 
put in a barrel. They wait for a couple days so the bears get on a pattern, and then they come sit in a tree stand downwind of it. Is that I mean, is is that the is short of it, or is there a little bit more strategy to it? Um, there's a little more strategy to it. You know, a guy don't actually appreciate the amount of work that goes into baiting till he does yeah. it. You okay. gotta commit because you're going through hundred like this this spring, for example, I, I ran two baits, fifty gallon barrel to each bait. So you're you're going through hundred gallons of bait every week. So the physical labor alone of hauling that in, like both my baits are a couple hundred yards off the quad trail. The one bait I can't even get a quad in, it's so thick. So here you are, you're making all these tracks, hauling in a hundred gallons worth of bait. Like that's a lot of physical work right there. But when you're setting up a bait, what you kind of look for is thick cover with water nearby. Ideally, you'll find a little a natural clearing that the bear will um, feel comfortable going into. Okay. Like um, my one bait, it's clearing is it's a big clearing for the bush, like for where we hunt. Like the, it's about a hundred yards long, kind of in an S shape, and about ten to fifteen yards wide. And the other clearing I'm hunting is like 20 yards by 20 yards. Okay. So when you establish a bait pile or a bait location, you do you have to go into the state ground? Are you allowed to cut down trees and trim, trim away area in order to uh, establish that bait ground? Um, no, we can't do that one. You can't do that. So no. basically you have to kind of find a natural clearing. Yeah, just a little natural opening. Okay. And then you're allowed to bring that, that big old 55-gallon drum or barrel in there. And yeah. what do you do? I mean, do you have to have bait piles authorized by um, like the DNR or? Um, it, it kind of, but not really. It depends. Some – like the place I'm hunting is actually a provincial park. So in that case, I just need to get a quadding permit to go in and I just need to um, get a baiting permit. So they know where my baits are. Okay. I think that's just so they can check them like at the end of the spring to make sure I take like all my stands and barrels and everything out. Okay. But just on like your plain provincial forest or crown land, as we call it here, you can just go in. You don't need anything. Just go in, put your barrel wherever you don't need any permits or anything. Okay. So then how, how early before the season starts, do you start baiting or is it something that you do all year round? Um, no, the season opens for bears like April 15th, but you know, that's meant to cover like the entire province of Saskatchewan. So, you know, kind of your Southern edge bears will be awake then, but there's lots of years and your bears aren't even up till, you know, 20th of April. Like I, I don't usually worry about setting baits till like the 24th, 25th, 28th of April. Okay. And then I plan on hunting all May. And unfortunately in provincial parks, your season closes May 31st, but all the other areas go into the end of June. So, you know, if I wasn't in a provincial park, I'd probably hunt till like the 10th of June and then call it. But okay. unfortunately I have to end at the end of May there. So their hibernation sometimes, you know, in the extreme north will will last all the way until April. Is there still a good amount of snow on the ground in April? Um, there can be. Um, this year we didn't have too much snow this winter, but there was still snow like April. I think I said it's April 25th, and there's still 
patches of snow in the bush then. And we didn't even have that much snow this winter. Gotcha. Okay. So as they, you know, as they start waking up and you said you start running those bait piles, um, what, what is the bait? I guess I, I, that's something I, you know, I hear just like junk, like guts of fish and, and stuff like that. Or is it, is it berries or, you know, Um, raw meat or, or what is it? uh, I trap a bunch of beavers in the spring. So beaver carcass is your best bait. And then I use grease and like um, old bread. For the most part, like the rumors and stuff you hear of bears eat the rotten meat and maggots and stuff. You have maggots and you're barely miles to dump it. They won't touch it. Okay. They're actually pretty picky, like compared to a coyote or something. Right. They're pretty picky. So it's just basically that smell that brings them in and then they, they'll, they'll eat the, they'll eat the grease and the, and the bread. And the beaver carcasses. And, and the beaver carcasses. Yeah, now, beavers are like candy to them. Okay. So is it an entire beaver carcass or it, that's after you've you've skinned them, right? Yeah. Some guys don't skin them just because the prices are so crappy, but I, I'm dumb enough. I still skin them. Okay. All right. <laughs> so how many, for for one season of baiting for you, how many beaver beavers do you typically have to catch? Oh, um, between... Probably about 30 or so between two baits, one or two beavers a week. Okay. And that will, they'll, they'll chew on it. Then they'll come back and chew on it some more, or do they eat it? I mean, um, the entire right away. Oh, what I've done in the past is always just stick it in the barrel and the barrel has like a six inch by a four inch or five inch hole, like yep. a rectangle. So I stick it in there by the top and then they work for it. And eventually they get it ripped out, but it, um, I'm going to try and build up like some beaver cages, which basically just allows like a little, a few little two or three inch holes so they can't drag it off. They have to work at it a lot longer and hopefully they don't need a beaver in two days. Okay. So basically what you're trying to do is, uh, just slow it down, slow it down. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned, you know, you're, you're, they're eating a hundred pounds of stuff in a hundred gallons, hundred gallons yeah. in a week. So are you only, you're just, you're refreshing that bait every week then? Yeah. You got to commit to being up there at least once a week just to bait. And then how many, how many, uh, how far from where you live to, in order to get back to that bait station? I'm, I'm fairly lucky. I'm, I'm about an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes away from my bait. So, okay. But still, but still that's round trip. So you're talking two to three hours every week dedicated. Well, and that's not including the time that's spent making the bait. Mm -hmm. Wow. That is, that is really, that is a commitment. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, it takes, uh, I think it takes by myself like six hours just to get all the bait and stuff filled up. Right. Once I'm in the bush. Right. So then, you know, all this, you know, okay, so there's the beavers that you've caught and skinned and, you know, you yeah. use their carcasses. Now the bread and the grease, where are you, where are you getting that from? Um, from the grocery store, the old stuff they're going to toss out. Okay. And you just, you get it, you have a connection with one of the grocery stores or do you, do you buy it from well, I'm, them? I'm the manager at the grocery store, so I, I have a little bit of pull. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's a win-win situation for you then. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So as these 
as these bears start waking up or they're already up, you start to place the bait. How, how long does it typically take to, you know, from the time the bears right, find the bait station and then start to, I guess, I mean, do they know it's there? Is it, some, is it a place they check because you've been doing it, you know, if for a while? If you've done it in an area for like, you know, a few years, then it's an established bait and they'll automatically just check it out. They'll always find an established bait way faster than a new bait. Okay. Like this year my established bait was hitting like two days after I set it and the new bait I set up took a week to be hit. Okay. So are you running trail cameras to, to, yeah, I got trail cameras going. Okay. So that lets you know what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of movement there is then, right? Yep. Okay. What what size and color and gotcha quantity. So as that season starts, you know, what, what do you do to prepare for the actual season other than have your, you know, have your gun? How far are you sitting back off of the, the bait station with your gun to? Um, not very far, about 20 yards. 20 yards. Okay. Yeah. And they're, you know, they have pretty poor eyesight if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, it's not the best. As long as you don't move, it's just, just like a deer, as long as they don't catch you moving. Gotcha. Like, okay. I'm hoping next year I can maybe get back a little farther just because I think some of the bigger bears are circling and getting my wind, but we'll play around with that next year, that theory. Right, right. So, I mean, when you get into the tree, I mean, for deer hunting, obviously we worry a lot about access to the bait or to the the bait, access to (laughs) the the tree stands, access to, you know, coming out at night. Um, What is the what's the access route? I mean, is there any science or strategy to it or is it just get off the, the, you know, take the path of least resistance? Um, with me anyways, path least resistance. I always just go in along the game trail. I always try and set up, um, the baits along the game trails too, just cause the bears naturally move there as well. So, okay. It's kind of right. win-win that way. Right. So do, do they ever, like you said, sometimes they're circling downwind are bear kind of like deer where they're, they're very, you know, I, I, I think when I think of a bear, I think they're a predator and a deer yeah. is more prey. So a deer is more maybe concerned with circling downwind of an area before entering it. Are bear this, are bears the same way? Do they try to have the wind to their advantage when they're um, entering into these, these bait stations? They're not going to do like a, like a big circle, like if you're calling coyotes or something, but they kind of have their preferred trails and, you know, they come in that way and it's strange. You'll get to know, like on my old bait there, you know, most of the bears come from the West, but for some reason, all the big bears come from the game trail on the East, which unfortunately is the way I had that bait set up. Like I wanted to West wind, you know, blow my scent away from the bait. And that also leads the bears to coming in right behind me. But, they will circle a little bit. Like if they suspect you're there, the hard part about that is the wind swirls so much in the bush. So sometimes they will catch a little whiff of you and then they'll circle and they'll actually get your full whiff and they'll just go, they'll just disappear. Okay. So I guess the next question is what is a good size bear and how old, I don't know. I really don't know hardly anything about (laughs) bear hunting. What is, what's a, what's a good age class? I mean, do you try to wait for a mature bear to come through or what's the story there? 
it depends. Some some years it depends on what the person wants. Some people like to hunt for color. Some people like to hunt for size. So it's you know trophies in the eye of the beholder. Right, right. I, I've been fortunate enough that I've got shot in every color phase of bear now. I got the last one this spring. So I'm back to waiting for big ones, but a big bear, like, uh, so Boone and Crockett, like the all time or whatever on bears, 21 inches. And they score that, they score a bear based on their skull, which is just the length and the width combined. Okay. So a 21 inch bear, you know, he'll probably weigh between four and 500 pounds in the spring. So ideally a person's going for something that size. All right. So, and these are, are these brown bear or these black bear that you're Uh, hunting black bear black bear okay so are there grizzlies in the area too or uh no no okay gotcha so it's just it's just black bear and um what when when the hunting season is is there ever uh is it can you hunt both males and females yeah you just can't shoot a sow with cubs can't shoot a sow with cubs okay yeah so how how do you know if that sow has cubs? Is it always because they're uh, right behind her, or I mean, do they yeah, ever hold back? They're usually, they're usually pretty close behind okay. them. Okay, the sow is pretty protective. Gotcha, gotcha. So as these, uh, so you're running trail cameras. Yeah. Do you check your trail cameras before the season starts to identify what? Uh, I mean, do you put together a hit list? Um, as soon as, as soon as I set my baits, I put a camera out and then, you know, every week when I refill baits, I pull the card at the same time. Okay. And then you're, and then you use that information to try to find, uh, um, you know, you try to find, uh, uh, you put together a hit list or try to find what you're actually try to. Okay. Yeah. And then the other, the other big thing with bears is watching with daylight movement, like where I hunt, there's decent amount of pressure so you know your big bear only slips up during daylight a couple times of maybe once maybe a couple days a, a spring or whatever just lots of it depends if they get on a sow and the sow's coming in during daylight because the rut starts to kick in towards the end of may there okay but for the most part the big ones are like pretty pretty much fully nocturnal just about okay and then, so, so it's just, it's almost like deer at that, uh, instance, you got to catch them at the right time in the right place. Other than that. And yeah. So is, do you ever run the risk of going in there to, you know, spook, do they ever spook to the point where you, you're never going to see them again? Or do you, is it one of those things where, okay, they, they're coming to this bait station, they may spook for a day or two, but then they're eventually going to come back. Um, it depends on the bear lots of like a bigger, older bear. Like I think if you spooked a big mature bear, you know, you might not ever see him in daylight again. Like for an example, last spring I had a sow with three yearlings coming in one day and I just kicked her off the bait. Just didn't want to deal with them being right around there, you know, too much issue. And never once did she ever come in while I was sitting again. Like she'd come in a couple hours before, like I was sitting like after I had just baited, but it was almost, I'm pretty sure she was circling the bait and catching my wind and then refusing to come in while I was there. Okay. So as you're, you know, as you're walking in 
and you know I'm from Iowa the the biggest threat that we would ever have to worry about is maybe a pissed off horse or a bull <laughs> you know that we got we we crossed the fence into a horse pasture or a cow pasture and and that would you know get pissed at us but you know coming up on a on a on a big 500 pound bear would seem a little bit uh, intimidating for me the very first time I, I would I would do it, especially if it's in the dark. Have you had any uh, experiences where you're kind of face-to-face or you hear them growling in the background and you know they're close but you can't see them? Well, with bear hunting, you usually just sit the evenings. Like you sit from like 3 or 4 o'clock on until 9 nine or nine thirty, what however late in the spring it is. Usually I leave like five minutes before legal light just because it does get dark in the bush faster than it gets out in the opening. Mm-hmm. Or out in the open. But I've had um, you know, angry at me and one thing they do when they're angry, they pop their jaws like if they catch your wind or something. I've had a sow bluff charge me. She I don't know, she stopped like twenty feet away or whatever. So that was probably the most hurt pounding (laughs) that would make me piss my pants i'm not gonna lie (laughs) why was there cubs with her at that time or yeah she she had a cub and we seen them coming in they were about 50 or 60 yards off and i was i was young i was like 13 or 14 i was hunting with my dad still and he yelled just to spook them off and she hoofed once sent the cub up the tree and then charged right at our stands wow that's nuts. That's nuts. So this for this particular hunt, this was this last year, right? Uh, yeah, the 2015 spring. Twenty the, the spring of 2015. Now, yeah. Um, my question is, uh, before I before I get to that, I, I'm back up a second. I want to ask the question about coloring. Are there different phases all bears go through, or is it just kind of a genetic where it's a genetics? You'll get just, some that are cinnamon, you'll get some that are chocolate, and then blonde. Right, and then, it depends on the area. Okay. It seems the east side is more more prone to color versus the west side of the province. Okay, probably the most common color would be cinnamon, and then um, blonde and chocolate are the rarest. With blonde being the rarest of the two. Right, and but a majority are black, right? Yeah. Okay, the gotcha. Are still gotcha. Black. Okay, so you you've shot. How, I guess, how many bears have you shot over the years? Um, five, I think. Five, okay. And is that a draw as well, or is that, is that uh, no, over the counter? No, buy it over the counter. Okay, so anybody can come up and do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this this last year when you shot your uh, when you shot your bear, what um, did you do anything different? Did you? I mean, is it uh, as simple as putting your trail camera out? Did you? You know, did you pass certain bears to get to this one? Or because you mentioned in in, the, in your contact to me originally that it was the 11th biggest bear taken in Saskatchewan that year. Yeah, it was the 11th biggest one shot in Saskatchewan that year. Um, that spring, my bait hadn't been real good. It started out good. My girlfriend shot her first bear like the May 9th or 10th. So that was the first bear I seen. For a couple of days after she shot hers. Um, a great big sow, like probably a 350-pound sow and three yearlings. That's the one that I spooked off and never come back in while I was sitting. Came in, and she took over the bait. She kicked every other bear off except for the one I shot. Um, the one I shot 
I had trail cam pictures of him probably a week, a week prior, you know, about every night, every second night. My trail camera was kind of half broken at this time, so it wasn't working real great. It had about a 10-foot motion pickup. And the first time that he was ever seen in daylight was the night that I shot him. Okay. So what happened about, it was about May 10th or 14th, the dandelions popped up. And when the dandelions pop up, your baits die for a week. They, they quit eating baits and they go and eat dandelions for a week, and then they'll come back to your baits afterwards. I, I don't know why. That's just what they do. <laughs> I, it's one of those things where uh, maybe they just favor dandelions over uh, over beaver. Yeah, I guess so. I <laughs> One of the guys I work with used to raise bison, and he said, like, for the first week, the dandelions come out and they eat them because it cleans their liver. So I don't know if it cleans the bear's liver, too, or, or what the deal is. Huh. That's, a, that's definitely interesting to hear. <laughs> now, when this bear came up i mean was was there a noticeable size difference with all the other bears that you've seen or is it something that you know a a trained only a trained eye would know um well most of your bears are most of the bears a guy sees are probably only 200 or 225 pounds i don't know what i never actually weighed this one i don't didn't have a scale but he probably went over 400 pounds okay um what a guy uses to judge bears is um the barrel usually if they're at the top of the 50 gallon barrel then they're you know a mature bear right the other thing to look at when they're coming in if you're trying to split difference is between you know a good bear and a booner bear is one thing to look for is they'll just a booner usually has a crease down its head just from like the muscles makes it look like it has a crease down the middle of its forehead yeah so that's just one way to differentiate between a, a really good bear and a Boone and Crockett bear. Okay. So what is Boone and Crockett for black bears? Uh, 21 inches. And then the three year thing is 20 inches. So three, uh, 20 inches, three years in a row. Yeah. Okay. And then the, the 21 inches, the all timer, whatever it's called. Okay. So do you know what the, I guess the world record for biggest black bear is? Uh, I think it's low 23. Okay. Gotcha. So that's a that's a pretty big bear then. Oh yeah, that's that's giant. <laughs> that's giant. Okay. Um, have you ever had any encounters or any trail camera pictures with a, you know, it, we always talk about, you know, oh that one two hundred inch whitetail, or we, you know, I got trail camera pictures of them, or I saw them at a hundred yards, and but I never saw them again. Do you have any, uh, you know, stories like that where you've had a couple encounters with some absolute giants, but were never able to seal the deal? Um, no, I've never flubbed on a giant. I've had trail cam pictures of ones that are probably, you know, it's so hard to tell because lots of times just with the delay on the trail camera and them having their head around the barrel, you can't get a good look at their head. Plus, yeah. you're, you know, sometimes the head is deceiving. Sometimes you'll go to skin the skull out and there's a bunch of fat and meat on there. So it makes the head look bigger too. So sometimes you get robbed that way. Right. But I've, I've had some that I think would be close to Boone and Crockett this year I think I had a blonde one that was close to Boone and Crockett he was just a you know probably 400 pounds 425 pounds just a giant but they're big and nocturnal and you need to get lucky be up there those right couple days right do they fight a lot um they can in the spring they can okay 
and it, you know with, with it coming into rut and they have their cubs with them so they pretty much get out of hibernation and then they start breeding right away or how's that um, work it, breeding probably starts like the 20th of may or so they kind of start looking for sows it's like your pre-rut period of a whitetail right and then you know end of may early june is when the sow and boars actually paired up and it's not like a whitetail where you know the buck and the doe go and lock down somewhere they they the boar follows the sow everywhere but she'll still come in and hit the bait so gotcha ideally you'll get a sow hitting the bait at like six o'clock every night with a four or five hundred pound giant glued to her back end right right so are there other males that kind of follow in the wake of that big one as well or i mean is it does does he good, do a good job of intimidating them enough where they're he not going to bug a good job of intimidating them you know okay. sometimes there you'll get pictures of like the bear i shot this spring for example i had him and the sow come in and then like 10 minutes later like this is on camera 10 minutes later another black one come in but the evening that I shot him, it was just him and the sow. And he'd been okay. fighting that day. He had a bunch of bite marks in his hide and stuff. So gotcha. he kicked the black one's butt, apparently. Nice, nice. So, you know, after you shot this, you know, after you shot him, um, was it a good shot? I mean, was it, did he die right there? Or did he run yeah. off? Um, so that day I was, it was, I just off the one day for a statutory holiday in Saskatchewan here. Um, so I ran up, I left, you know, town that's that morning at six or eight o'clock in the morning, whatever time it was, I, I got up to the bush, rebaited. I was probably done baiting around 1130 or noon, went fishing for a few hours, fishing sucks. So I was back in the stand by three o'clock. In the meantime, a bear had hit the bait. I could tell the sticks were out of the barrel and everything. Um, later looking at the trail cam, it was that um, big cin cinnamon sow and her yearlings. So I, I was settled into the stand around three o'clock and I was hoping for some quick action. And about half hour after I settled in, I heard some leaves and twigs breaking and <clears throat> got my hopes all up just to see a coyote trot through the bait. <clears throat> um, a few hours out, probably around six or seven, I had heard elk come through. And then it was, it was about nine o'clock and I was, well, about quarter nine, I was kind of thinking of calling it a night early. Usually I sit to... 9 15 10 after 9 because shooting lights done around 9 20 or so at that time of year and then by i made myself stay till 9 even though I, <clears throat> it had been such a crappy night and about nine o'clock i heard a crack of a stick behind my stand and i looked back expecting to see like a deer or something and sure enough something moved took a couple more steps forward and like 50 or 60 yards away there was this bear coming down the trail probably took him <clears throat> about five minutes to come down the trail he would only take a few steps and stop it was a really calm night like not a breath of wind which was so i'm kind of surprised it didn't swirl and he caught my wind i think the one i think there was a light breath blowing away from him and towards my bait actually so it wasn't a <laughs> wasn't a very good win to hunt that night but i had no other choice and he come in and eventually he got to basically the the base of my tree stand like when i set up our tree stands because me and my girlfriend hunt together i set up two tree stands side by side 
and they're maybe about five feet apart, six feet apart. Like they're near enough. We can pass bug spray and stuff back and forth. So he was at the base of that tree stand and I just remember him swinging over to like sniff my feet because my tree stands are only eight feet off the ground and I'm six foot tall. So I got a couple feet of um, my feet hanging down. I just remember him to like swing his head over. I don't know if he was going to sniff my feet or what, but then I, I kind of trolled around and said, Hey, get out here or whatever, just because it was much too close then. And he ran about 20 or 30 yards off to the South and stopped and he was he was pissed off at this point he started um, popping his jaws and pacing back and forth and he paced into an opening and I I had my gun up and I he stopped just about broadside and I hammered him with a 300 mag and he went about 10 yards and tipped right over so after you shot after you shoot him I mean did did you realize it was the the big bear that you had uh, got on trail camera? Um, I didn't realize he was as big as what he was. Okay. I knew he, I figured he'd be like 300 pounds, like pretty nice bear. Right. I didn't realize he was like over 400 pounds. Okay. So when you walked, when you walked up to him, did you, were you kind of awestruck by how big he was? Were you excited? <clears throat> what was kind of going through your head? Oh, I was stoked. I had yelled at like the top of my lungs, like, he grew like 25%. <laughs> it's not often things grow after you shoot them. Right, right. But it was, and then it was the, the old crap moment. Like, I'm bear hunting out there by myself. Like, how am I going to get this 400-pound bear out of the bush by myself? That was the next thought that crossed my mind. So, I mean, and was this at one of the bait stations where you had your quad next to you? Or was this the one that you had to walk? a little further um, distance i i walk into both of them but this one i can get the quad into okay so I, I was able to get the quad drove up to him and at that time i'd always use the calf sled to bait um, do you know what one of those are like for hauling baby calves uh-uh. into okay um guys use them up here they haul baby when a calf is born in february or whatever they toss the calf in there and haul it into the barn and just so it stays warm and doesn't die Anyways, it's about, I don't know, four-ish feet long and two and a half or three feet wide. Maybe four and a half feet long. Right. So, like a heavy-duty plastic sled. So, I got him in there somehow. I don't, there's a lot of adrenaline going through me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I got him rolled in there and we got him, we got about halfway out. I'm about a mile off the highway. And we got about halfway out and then the sled broke. Oh, boy. <laughs> so... So did you do, do you, did you do all your gutting, uh, at the bait station? Uh, I don't gut bears. I just, I either skin them there and okay. then take the meat off and stuff. Or in this case, because I had to work the next day, I was just going to take them out whole and skin them the following morning. Okay. So then you, you skin them and then you, uh, you take what, I mean, how much meat can you get off of a bear? Um, well, it depends. Like legally, we don't have to take the meat off bears here. Okay. I, I do. There's not as much as a guy would think. Like their back straps are no bigger than a deer's, but right. not quite as long. The hind quarters aren't real big. And I usually put a rifle bullet through the front quarters. So that eliminates that. So I don't know, you get 40 ish pounds off them, which okay. for an animal, their size, you would expect a lot more. Right. Right. 
Okay. So out, out of 500 pounds or 400 pounds, you're getting 40 pounds, roughly 40 pounds of meat. Um, yeah, about that. About that. So, I mean, is it where does the majority of their weight just in their guts then? Yeah, big stomach, big heavy bones. Bones okay. are like a, a cow bone almost, like they're really thick. They're, they're nothing compared to a deer. Like they're way thicker. They're the best thing I compare them to is like a cattle. Okay. Cattle yeah. shoulder almost. For sure. All right. And I think a bunch of the meat does go come off the front shoulders, but with, uh, you know, a 300 mag or something through the front shoulders, you eliminate a lot of that meat pretty quick. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, I mean, I tell you what, I got an education on uh, bear hunting today. So <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I appreciate, I, you know, I, I always love to see how other people hunt and, you know, throughout the, the, I guess it, it's, now it's official. I can I can call this a multinational podcast because we <laughs> have now it, we have now interviewed somebody from uh, from Canada. But uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show and sharing this story with us, and not necessarily a story, but just about bear hunting in general. And uh, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. And there you have it, another podcast in the books. Uh, first off, I want to say thank you to Chase Moon for coming on the show, taking time out of his day uh, to tell us uh, the story of his bear hunt and basically to educate me on bear hunting and how it works and uh, talk a little bit about his uh, his life up there in Saskatchewan. Other than that, uh, thank you guys for tuning in, as always, uh, to the podcast. I you know, like I always say, if it wasn't for you guys, I wouldn't be talking into this microphone in my basement while my wife takes care of the kids. Thank you very much to Exodus Trail Cameras. Make sure you guys go and visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com if you guys want a badass trail camera. And if you do decide to buy a trail camera from Exodus, enter the code Nine Fingers. That's the number nine, no space fingers and you'll receive $20 off your purchase now last but not least 2% for conservation real big push this week I am I am forcing you to go and check them out go to their Facebook page and like it follow them on Twitter and Instagram and most importantly go to their website fishandwildlife.org to find out more about this organization, what they are doing, and how you can become involved. Other than that, thank you guys very much again for tuning in. Hopefully your hump day does not suck. And remember, when you're in a tree, wear your damn safety harness. <laughs>